Uh, we're going to do Isaiah 8 and 9. I had originally intended for this lesson uh, to be tonight as we've been studying through Isaiah. Uh, but when I got done with it, I, I, I was just really so, um, really so captivated by the text that I wanted to share it with you uh, this morning. So tonight's going to be Luke, uh, because I thought we were going to do Luke then Isaiah, but I wanted to reverse it because uh, really beautiful, the, the text that's described for us here of what God is doing uh, for his people. Uh, so what we're going to do is kind of just move through it slow by slowly, uh, piece by piece. And uh, as we do, this is always a challenge for me. And for some of you, this comes easy. And for others of you, it comes more difficult. But to try to uh, to capture and visualize the imagery and the poetry that that Isaiah is using here. Uh, I told my wife this morning, I said, this lesson's very difficult for me because I'm very accountant, analytical, Black and white give me numbers. Uh, my worst grade in college was English lit. Uh, just I don't work like that. My brain doesn't function that way. Uh, but this is a text that needs that kind of uh, right brain thought process. As you see Isaiah picturing something just so fantastic of what the future holds for God's people. And so I, I hope that you can entertain uh, that side of your mind if you're like me and find difficulty with accessing that section and uh, really see what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy that all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. For he will come, become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Let's stop there in our, our reading. What he begins with Isaiah is he begins to describe here's the way that people should be walking. In fact, he gives the instruction in verse 11 to Isaiah and says, I don't want you to be like them. I want you to recognize how my people have failed me. They have not been what they have supposed to be. They have not acted like my people. And so he says, I don't want you to act like them. I don't want you to listen to the things that they are saying. Now, contextually, remember what Isaiah has going on that we have King Ahaz, who is under the threat of Syria and Israel, who are about to attack. And Isaiah has come to him and said, don't put your trust in us, Syria, to come in and deal with them. Put your trust in God. Believe in God that he will deliver you because God has promised that he will. In fact, giving Isaiah sons as well as signs to prove that very point that God was with his people. However, Ahaz rejected that sign. He rejected trusting God. And so now God turns his attention to Isaiah and says, don't listen to these people. Don't act like them in their failure to trust me. You must put your trust in me and you should fear nobody else but God. Don't fear what the nations seem to be doing against you. Don't fear what they can possibly accomplish. Here is what you're supposed to do, Isaiah. You're supposed to put your trust in me. You're supposed to fear me. And you see that in how he's supposed to do that in verse 13. He says, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. This is God's heavenly armies. 
Him you are to hold as holy. Yeah, that is what you're supposed to do. You are to honor Him. Recognize that He is the one that deserves your trust and honor Him that way. And that is one of the means by which we prevent ourselves from fearing like the world and lacking trust like the world lacks trust in God. And so easy it is for us to lose our confidence in God and believing that God is able to act in our lives and is working on our behalf. He says, one of the ways that you keep from that failure is that you will honor me. Let him, verse 13, be your fear. Let him be your dread. He is the one that you are supposed to put your trust in. And the imagery is powerful in verse 14. Where he pictures here, there are two options. That to those who will honor him, to those who will fear him, to those who will put their trust in him, He says, I will be your sanctuary. And it's not only an image of coming to God and He will protect you. But that word for sanctuary, it carries the idea of being God's holy place. It's the same word used in Exodus 25 and verse 8 when God says, I'm going to have my holy place among you and I will dwell in your midst. I am... With you it is a picture of God blessing his people, his presence being with them, that you are in relationship with me. He says, if you will trust me, if you will fear me and honor me, I will bless you. I will be in your midst. I will dwell with you. But if you don't, he continues in that verse. A rock of stumbling, a stone of offense is what it is going to be. It is a picture that would be used back in that day. You would set a large stone in the path to prevent somebody from going the wrong way. It was an effort to try to prevent them from danger. But rather through rebellion or through carelessness, you just trip right over that stone and stumble. The object that was there to protect you, the object that was there to keep you from going the wrong way has now become the very thing that is brought you on your face. It has caused you to stumble. I tried to come up with all kinds of analogies to that. I had a very difficult time. It reminded me a little bit of the the Grand Canyon and all the guardrails that are there. And that human desire to cross lines and boundaries, you know, that you want to get on the other side. And I did. I got on the other side of those rails and stood there and Wanted to get a little closer than where you're supposed to be. That's, that's kind of the way human nature works. And what God is describing is, I've given you something, and yet so often we run into God's laws and become pulverized and stumble over God's laws, rather than seeing them as our protection, seeing them as what, what is there for our good. In fact, that's what he is essentially going on and describing here is that what you do with God determines the outcome. As he calls to his people, if you will honor me and trust me, if you will believe in me, if you will follow me and not act like the world, I'll be your holy place. I will be your sanctuary. I'll be your blessing. But unfortunately, verse 15 says, many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken and they shall be snared and taken. But many are not going to see their Lord as the sanctuary, but he will become their stumbling stone. They will fall and trip over the very thing that God is trying to prevent them from falling and tripping and say, this is the way to come. Here are my laws. 
Honor me and serve me, and therefore I will be your God. He he continues with that in verse 16. And what the people are supposed to do? Treasure God's word. Look at verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will save these things for people who will listen to me. Israel will not trust. Israel will not honor him. And Israel is not treasuring the very words of God. And so he tells Isaiah, seal them up. Wait for a time when you can find people who will care about my laws. Wait for a people who will listen to what I have to say. Because these people will not. They will not trust me, they will not listen, and they will not obey. And so they are falling over that stone, they are tripping over it, and they are perishing because of it. But look for those who would listen, look look for those who would obey. And you see that in verse 17. Here's Isaiah. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on this mountain. Here Isaiah says, but I will do this while God is removing himself from Israel, hiding his face because they will not treasure his words and they will not honor him and they will not trust him. Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord. I will put my hope in him. Even though we are worthy of judgment and we have not done what God has called us to do and we have not walked in the way that God has called us to walk. He says, I will wait for the Lord. And verse 18 is extremely powerful. I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs. As we've studied the book of Isaiah, we've seen that. We've seen that the names of these children, as well as Isaiah as a prophet himself, are standing as messages to Israel, a message to the world. Remember the names of these children are like a remnant will return and swift to the spoil and quick to the prey are the names of his two children so far. Images to them about there is coming judgment, but a hope of restoration in the future. The people have not lived how they should have lived, but there is a hope that would be to come. And so Isaiah says, my children are signs to this hope. And one of the things that is really interesting about this hope, and I want to take you off into the New Testament for a moment, is the writer of Hebrews snares this very sentence. I and the children whom the Lord has given me. The writer of Hebrews latches on that. And does some typological fulfillment and turns on it and says, do you know who's talking? He says, Jesus is talking. Jesus says, I and the children you've given me in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13. And what's really fascinating about that is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to argue is twofold. Number one, just as Isaiah is putting his hope in God in the midst of judgment and disaster, Jesus also put his hope in the Father as he goes to the cross. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is driving at in chapter 2, the sufferings that Jesus would endure, how he was identifying himself with flesh and blood. And in doing so, he was putting his hope in God, and he was entrusting himself to the Father, the writer of Hebrews argues. 
But so what's fascinating about that section of quotation is not only to say Jesus was putting his hope in God, but then the quotation is, I and my children. Well, who is Jesus' children? Nothing physical. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to describe it as his brothers, his congregation and his children that he was talking about us, that we are his children. And the message of Isaiah then is this, as Isaiah is a sign to these people and so are his children to put their hope in God. Jesus comes to the earth, he suffers a horrible death and is a sign to the people himself about the hope in God. And so are his children, his followers also become signs to the world and signs to the all the lost about the hope that is found within Jesus. The writer of Hebrews amazingly constructs this together, coming off of a simple phrase, and brings this all home to help us understand where we stand before God. That the call that we are reading to Isaiah is not isolated to its own time, but it has a fulfillment to us as well. That the call to us is to trust God and to live our lives in such a way that we will be signs to the world. In fact, this has been the failure of Israel. When you read the prophets, you will read that that's exactly what God criticizes them for, that rather than people coming to God and worshiping God, the Gentiles were blaspheming the name of God because of Israel. And Isaiah says that was not supposed to be. And calls upon them to put their trust in Him and to turn to Him. And the same way we are supposed to be lights in the world as Jesus described it. We are supposed to be a sign to the world about the hope that's available in Jesus. But here is the problem. Notice verse 19. And here's where things unravel. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Here is now Isaiah saying, here's now the essence of the problem. Here's what I expected you to do. I expected you to put your trust in God. I expected you to put your hope in me. I expected you to treasure my words. I expected you to follow my teachings. I expected you to hold all those things in high regard. But you've walked in darkness. You've rejected me. And and verse 19 is just staggering because rather than trusting in God, rather than seeking God for answers, notice they are turning to witchcraft, the black arts, magic, things like that, is where they're turning. Verse 19, they're inquiring of mediums and necromancers. And I love, this is making fun of it when he says they chirp and mutter They make all kinds of these funny noises to act like you're getting an answer. It's a real good thing that we don't have people who do that today. I'm glad that nobody turns to death and darkness and ghosts and all kinds of things like that to try to find answers for their life. It's a good thing we've learned. Same problem. We don't want to trust God. We don't want to seek after God. We don't want to learn the ways of God. We will look in any other place that we can look. We will look in all kinds of other places trying to find answers. 
And God is trying to tell us something. You're not going to find answers by looking out into the world. And you're not going to find answers through seeking ghosts or trying to have mediums or any of those kinds of things. Notice verse 20. If you want answers... If you would like to know what is going to happen next, if you would like to know what your life requires, look at verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony of the Lord. That's where you turn. Don't turn to these false ways. Don't turn to the world. God's words are the only way to find the way that you should go in life. And that's what he gives them there in verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, is because they have no dawn. They have no light. Oh, we try to find light in so many places. Light in books, light in television, hope in other philosophies and teachings. And find any way that we can to seek out what we think is good for us. Isaiah says, to the teaching, to the testimony. If you want to know the ways of God, that's where we are supposed to turn. And I submit to you, the problem really boils down to this. And this is, the, I think, where Isaiah is laying his finger upon the people. And I think it is very relevant for us. Is what has become of the people is that they are atheists, practically. In practice. If you were to ask them, they would say that they believe in God. But they don't act like it. They really don't trust God. They do not consult God. They do not talk to God. They do not seek God. They do not read His words. Oh, they will tell you that they care about God. But in practice, they are atheists. And that's what Isaiah is living out here. Is he's saying, these people won't obey. Their hope is not in Him. They're not seeking the ways of God. In fact, they're inquiring of mediums instead of inquiring of the Lord their God. It is so easy for us to fall into the same trap, to do the exact same thing of walking in darkness. That we seek the ways of the world, that we don't put our trust in God, that we really don't believe that He is listening, that we don't find value in prayer, that we don't believe that He cares. We simply say there's a God, we come to worship, but there's no life change. There's no heart that seeks after Him. There's no longing to know His words. And this is the land that Isaiah lives in, the kind of people that he deals with. And notice what is pictured of it now. Verse 20, because they have, they have no dawn. Verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, are hungry they will be enraged. And will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so he describes the result of what's going to happen. He says they're going to live now futile and empty lives. It's going to be total emptiness. And while they think that they are seeking the good life... Notice the two aspects of what they're doing. Notice in verse 21 it says, They're enraged and speak contemptuously, contemptuously with their face upward against God. They're angry at God. 
And all the while they're seeking more in the things of this world. Verse 22. So what do they do? They look to the earth and what do they find? Any answers? No. More darkness, more distress, more mess, more trouble. Here is God looking at his people and saying, you're seeking after all the wrong things. You're inquiring of all the wrong people. And are you of any kind of surprise that now you find yourself in darkness and anguish and distress? So here he tells Isaiah, save my word for people who will listen to what I have to say. Because these people are full of darkness. They're angry at me and they will not listen to me. They will not turn their hearts to me. They're just seeking the earth, doing what they want to do. And they get mad at me and they turn angry at me because things don't go right when they're doing their own thing. Phenomenal how God gets the blame when we do what we want to do. We live how we want to live. We make our own choices, follow our own decisions, consult who we want to consult. And then we get to the end of the day and wonder why things are a mess. God must not be there. And here's God going, what are you angry at me for? You didn't follow my ways. You didn't listen to my teaching. So he's pictured in here from verses 11 through 18. Here's what I expected of my people. In verses 19 through 22 described, we don't do it. We fall short. We walk in darkness. This is what sets the tone now for chapter 9. Look at what God's going to do. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now he just ended this by saying, the place is full of darkness. You are in distress and anguish. You have not followed me. I've turned my face from you, verse 17. And so you are in this despair. But, verse 1, but there's no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This now depicts a triumph of God's grace. The people have done nothing that God has told them to do. They have shown themselves as utter failures and walking in darkness. They are deserving of being cast off. But here now God says, but here's what's going to happen. The light has come. And I want you to notice as you read through this, these first seven verses, is that it's all written as if it has already occurred. It is already in the past tense. Notice the description there, like verse 2, the people who walked, past tense in darkness, have seen a great light, past tense, as if it's occurred, but it hasn't happened yet. Here God says there is a prophetic certainty of something that is going to happen in the future. Something that is so great, the light is going to shine upon the land again. And it hasn't happened yet, but you can count upon it with great certainty, such that he words all of this in the past tense. And what is amazing about what this is, is twofold. Number one in verse one, it says it's going to begin in Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, what we read about historically is that's where Assyria started first. They were the first to experience the doom and darkness as God would allow Assyria to begin to run over the land because the people were not obeying. 
But notice what this means in terms of Jesus, because this is quoted in Matthew 4 and verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Phenomenal. As Jesus now begins his ministry in Matthew, as he comes out of the temptation of the wilderness, the first thing that Matthew records for us is he begins to walk around Galilee. He makes his home in Capernaum. And Matthew comes along and says, this is exactly what Isaiah was talking about. As Jesus begins to walk in Galilee and begins to preach to the people, God says, the light has shown. A light has now been shown upon my people. The light has now come. And notice what this accomplishes. Back to Isaiah 9. And notice as the light shines, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. Here is speaking of God. Here is what God is going to do. When the light shines, here is what will take place. Number one, verse three. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at a harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. He says the joy is going to be like a joy of great harvest time. We don't have that. We don't have any farmers here we live in urban time how do you relate to that that's a big windfall that happens this is the great paycheck at the end of a year of work and labor as you would sow and begin to reap and now it is harvest time and the great joy of all of your labor finding success he says god is going to accomplish an amazing joy he's going to multiply the nation you are going to be found victorious as if it was the time when you grabbed the spoils That's the kind of joy you're going to have. And this immense victory is going to occur. And what is so fascinating of what Isaiah is doing is he's saying, it's going to be this people, this people who are an utter failure, who are walking in darkness, who are not walking in the ways of God, who are not treasuring His Word or trusting in Him. These of all people are going to see a great light. These of all people are going to have their joy multiplied beyond measure. Listen to more of what he says is going to happen. Verse 4. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The oppressor is going to be shattered. The power of an oppressor is going to be wiped out. And notice the imagery is that it's going to be broken like in the days of Midian. Well, that was when Gideon was judge over the people. And if you remember that story, God wanted to go out of his way to make a point about the victory that was going to happen in the days against the Midianites. He wiped out those people who were already outnumbered anyway down to a mere 300 men of a fighting army to show that God was the power by which this victory would be accomplished. 
And it wasn't going to be accomplished by the might of Gideon. It wasn't going to be accomplished by the might of the armies. It was going to be accomplished by the power of God. And so there is something amazing that's going to happen. There is going to be a miracle that's going to occur because God is going to show His amazing works just as in the days of Midian. He's going to break the power of the oppressor. And He's looking forward to a time of breaking the power of sin, breaking the power of Satan who has his clutches over us. In fact, notice verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle to molt... And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for a fire. This pictures us walking onto the battlefield scene. And the battle is already done. Notice it's described that all the battle paraphernalia is all going to be burned up. It's not needed anymore. He doesn't say, now put those clothes on, we're going to battle. He says, no, go throw it in the fire. The war is over. God's already won it. God has already accomplished the victory. Every boot, every garment that's been rolled in blood is now burned as fuel for the fire. God has accomplished something great. And so the grand question that is riding along to this moment is, well, what has happened? Okay, the light has shown... We're no longer in darkness. We're no longer in gloom. The joy has been multiplied. The oppressor has been broken. The battle is accomplished. How are these things to be? How can this be done? Because we have failed our God. We have not trusted in Him. We have not treasured His Word. We have looked to everywhere else but God. So how can it be that the light is going to shine upon a people who are full of darkness and distress, anguish and gloom? Verse 6 is the answer. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here is the answer. Something that we did? No. God gave a son. These two verses I think we know pretty well. But when you attach the weight of its context, it becomes glorious. The reason why the light shines, the reason why there is joy, the reason why we can now say the battle is won and the oppressor has been broken, is because God gave a son. God has acted on our behalf. And the picture that he gives in verses 6 and 7 is one that is entirely different than King Ahaz. King Ahaz at this time is a wicked ruler. He does not trust God. He does not care about Him. And he says, I'm going to send a son and he's going to rule in righteousness. He's going to rule with justice. The government's going to be placed upon his shoulders and there's going to be no end to this government. And even more so, notice the pictures that are given to him. First of all, verse 6, His name will be called one. Wonderful Counselor. 
And when you read that, please do not treat that like, oh, I had a wonderful breakfast. That's not the kind of wonderful that that word means. It means full of wonders, miracles. He is going to show the miraculous acts of God, full of wonders, this counselor, this one who will lead, this one who will teach, this one who will advise and tell us how we should go. He will be called Mighty God. That is amazing. It is going to be God Himself that He will come and carry the authority, the power, the might, the strength of God when He comes. Who is this King? This King is not just going to be another person. It is a King that can be called Mighty God. There is nobody in all the Scriptures who's ever called that. I don't care how great of a hero he is, from Abraham to Moses, none of them had any attachment that was called to them God. This king will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Again, emphasizing divinity. No king can rule forever. And yet his, in verse 7, this ruling on the throne and upholding it with justice and righteousness, he says, will happen from this time forth and forevermore. And it pictures him ruling in kindness to call him Father, everlasting Father. Connecting him not only to deity, but the tenderness of a father that he has for his children. Verse verse 6, he'll be called the Prince of Peace. And this is critical to the study. Back in chapter 8 and verse 17, we read, Isaiah said, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Israel. There is separation between God and his people. They are not obedient to me, but this one who who comes will now reconcile the people back to God. This is the peace that is going to come. Not just simply wartime peace or physical peace, but the peace that we need because God could not be with us because we are in darkness and gloom and anguish because of our sins. And of His rule, verse 7, it will increase. No one will stand against it because He rules in righteousness and in justice. In fact, He says, it will be done. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. It has to happen. I want to leave you with just two thoughts for this morning. The picture that Isaiah paints pictures a battle that's already done. A king who has already won his victory has already subjugated the enemies. And has already established his throne and government. If you know who's going to win the battle beforehand, would you not choose the winning side? I suppose that would have changed a lot of foreign policy in our past if we would have known the outcome of various conflicts and wars. If you know how it's all going to turn out, that makes the decision an awful lot easier. If you know, if you're part of World War II, the Germans are not going to win and the Japanese are not going to win, then I'm going to go ahead and surrender to the winning team before the battle unfolds. I'm going to go ahead and get on the right side. 
And here is Isaiah prophesying to the people. He says, choose your side. If you will come to the stone, you will find sanctuary, a holy place, God dwelling with you. If you will trust him, if you will honor him as king, if you will yield to him and serve him. And if you will do that, you will find joy and peace. Your peace will be multiplied to you, he says. Your joy will be multiplied to you. You will no longer have to walk in darkness and anguish. You can now come into the light of God. Why would we choose a side that's already destined to lose? And let me say it this way. It's not destined to lose. It's already lost. When Jesus is born, Isaiah says, that's when the loss occurred. It was already certain. Because Jesus would come, live a perfect life, die for sins, and raise three days later, conquering sin, death, and Satan. Once the Son was given, Satan lost. It is not a matter of, well, is it going to be taken away in the future? The battle has already been won and Christ reigns now. Which is a call for us then to experience the joy that Isaiah says those people one day down the road will experience. He speaks of it as a, in the past tense. One day, he says, there's going to be those people, they'll no longer walk in darkness, they'll no longer walk in gloom and anguish. They'll listen to God and they will follow Him and honor Him and serve Him. They will be the lights in the world and they will be signs out the world like they're supposed to be. Are we those people? Are we looking at the circumstances that God has called us out of and recognize the great victory that has been accomplished for us through Jesus? We are walking onto the battlefield scene and we are looking... At the winning Christ, who's already accomplished it all. And how foolish it would be on our part to then turn and say, I'm not going to yield to the winner. I'm not going to yield to the great king who has done all of this on my behalf, who has brought light into our darkness. Let me please encourage you, as we begin to turn the page into a new year, That you will seek the Lord. That you will seek the testimony and the counsel and the teachings of your God. That you will stop looking to the ways of the world and the philosophies of life. That you will stop looking to your own heart and your own desires. That you will look to the Lord and He will be your guide. That He will be the one who will teach you and lead you. That is what Isaiah is picturing. Those are what His people look like. People who find joy and put their hope and trust in God. Let us not be practical atheists. Claiming to be God, but we really don't believe it in practice. We don't practice trusting Him, surrendering our lives to Him, following Him in full faith. If there's any resolution you're making for 2013, may it be that He is our God that we serve and none other. And we've fallen nothing else. Pull your songbooks.